Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of singers, dancers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 73. My very special guest is Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz wrote the music and lyrics for the current Broadway hit, Wicked, and has also contributed to the music and lyrics to Godspell, Pippin, The Magic Show, The Baker's Wife, Working, which he also adapted and directed, Rags, and The Children of Eden. He collaborated with Leonard Bernstein on the English text for Bernstein's Mass and wrote the title song for the play and movie Butterflies Are Free. He has also worked in film, collaborating with Alan Menken on the songs for Disney's Enchanted, as well as the animated features Pocahontas and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He has also written the songs for DreamWorks' animated feature The Prince of Egypt, which is now a live-action musical. A book about his career, Defying Gravity, has been released by Applause Books. Mr. Schwartz has been inducted into the Theatre Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and has been given the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Awards include three Academy Awards, four Grammy Awards, and a tiny handful of tennis trophies. Here we go. I have the extreme pleasure of sitting here with Stephen Schwartz. We are in Tuacon, where you're about to open a new production of Prince of Egypt. And I just thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. As long as we're here, we might as well talk, right? Sounds great to me. It's interesting because whenever I talk to anyone about you, they always talk about your talent. But the thing that they immediately talk about is your kindness and your willingness to give back and be a mentor. And that alone is a calling in itself on top of music. Have you always wanted to repay and give back to developing artists? Yeah, I don't really I don't really think of it that way. You know, I just find that life works a lot better if you give to people what you would like to get back from them. You know, I had both the fortune and the philosophical misfortune of doing Godspell when I was very young. There is this saying in Godspell, which is always treat others as you would have them treat you. And if you're working on that every single day for a while, and then you do several companies, and then you do several versions around the world, eventually that message lodges in your brain and then you're stuck with it. Well, that's a great thing to be stuck with. But to solidify that fact, you received a special Tony Award for your commitment to serving artists and fostering new talent. So this isn't something that goes unrecognized. Even the Tonys... No, it's been really nice. You know, I don't do it. Obviously, one isn't doing that for recognition. And I also feel that it's perceived from the outside as being extremely altruistic, etc. But I have learned so much from doing this over the years, from working with up-and-coming composers and lyricists, and I feel like I gain more than anybody. You know, I run this program for ASCAP, uh, which I've done, shockingly, as I'm thinking about it, for at least 20 years, for aspiring musical theater writers, composers, and lyricists. And I swear, of all the people who've come through that program, the one who's gotten the most out of it is me. Well, that's so wonderful. I, I can't deny there's a selfish component to it. We talked about being very young when you got started. By the age of 26, you had three shows running on Broadway. Where are you from and how did you get started? I'm a Long Island Jewish boy. You know, I grew up close to New York City. My parents, neither of whom are remotely in the arts, but were very avid theater goers and actually had a friend who was a composer 
and who was working on a Broadway show, which was an adaptation of a record album that he did, and they took me to see that show. I think I was about seven or eight, and I had that experience that many people who wind up in the theater have of just sort of immediately being smitten with the entire atmosphere of musical theater and feeling like that was where I wanted to live. So I always knew that was what I wanted to pursue. And because we were very proximate to New York City, I was able to go in and see a lot of shows, both original productions and revivals of great shows. So, you know, from the point of time when I was, as I say, about eight or nine years old. I was seeing a lot of musical theater and I also knew from that age that that was where I wanted to be. And I think it's, it's helpful, particularly for getting off to a fast start, if you know what you actually want to do mm. early enough. And then did you just have natural music talent? Did your parents put you in school? I was born with musical ability. You know, it's not something anybody can take credit for. It's genetic. It's like taking credit for the color of your eyes. You know, right. it's just something you're born with. And I was fortunate that, in fact, this composer friend of my parents recognized it quite early and actually suggested to my parents that they might want to get a piano and get me piano lessons. So that's really how, how that got started because, as I say, neither of them are musicians and it wasn't on our radar. It's right. not from a show business family or anything like that. But I did start playing the piano pretty young. I think I was about six or seven years old. Took to it immediately and always had musical ability because I was born with that. For high school and college, were you writing for the school shows or where did you start getting your music out there? Well, it's interesting that we were, do were doing a discussion about ensemble and chorus yes. um, because I was remembering that the first show that I wrote, though I used to make up little puppet shows with my sister and neighborhood children, but the first show I actually wrote was uh, when I was in high school, I wrote this musical, it was sort of a fractured fairy tale, which in fact included a witch as its protagonist. And I took it in because I thought, well, maybe we could work on this in, in my high school. And the drama teacher and choral director who looked at it and said, well, this is a lot of fun, but there's no chorus in it. You haven't written any chorus numbers. You've only written things for the principals. And I realized that I was seeing all these shows, of course, yes. which had ensembles and big chorus numbers, but it never occurred to me to think about writing stuff for a chorus, which is funny since now I'm so known really for writing shows that involve a lot of ensemble work and a lot of choral work. But yeah, so that was my first show and I, I sort of left out the chorus. <laughs> and then when I was in high school, I went to Juilliard Prep. Mm. And so I used to go into the city every Saturday and study a lot of music there. And consequently, uh, when it was time to go to college and I knew that I was interested in pursuing musical theater and I felt I had a lot of music training by this point but what I didn't have at all was any kind of theater training mm. other than simply seeing shows so I went to Carnegie Mellon and I was a drama major at Carnegie Mellon. I started out as a writing major there my freshman year and I felt too sort of removed from the program and so I switched to become a directing major even though I didn't want to be a director mm. because that was what allowed me to just take everything you know, acting, but also design and history of theater and, and really learn about professional theater because that's what I wanted to do. And at Carnegie Mellon, there was a, a club, an extracurricular organization called in a very collegiate way, Scotch and Soda. Um, <laughs> and they did an original musical every year 
written, produced, performed by students. And when I was there for freshman orientation, and you know, all the clubs do their little presentations, and this got and so did a presentation, and I signed up, and I said that I was a songwriter. And it so happened that that year, the show that they were going to do, they had lost their composer because she was supposed to be at school and then she wasn't. So they came to me and they said, would you set these couple of lyrics and see how that works out? And I did. And then I got to be the composer. Interestingly enough, the book writer and lyricist, though I wound up writing um, some lyrics as well, for that show and the show I did my sophomore year was at that time a girl named Iris Ratner, who became Iris Rayner Dart, who wrote Beaches. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Iris and I have known each other since then. But yeah, so the four years that I was at Carnegie Mellon, I basically co-wrote an original musical every year. And that was incredibly valuable training because it was safe. You know, of course, they were terrible. But I learned (laughs) so much from doing that and from seeing it in front of an audience and kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And then just very quickly to complete this, my junior year, a friend of mine who was in the drama department had stumbled upon a, a paragraph in a history textbook about the son of Charlemagne and had this idea to do the show about Charlemagne's son, Pippin, and revolting against his father and uh, asked me to do it with him. And that's, that's actually where Pippin started, was oh, Carnegie wow. Mellon, my junior year, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So you're a unicorn in the sense of you're a composer and a lyricist, and that, I mean, there are some that do that. Is it just that you like doing both, or does one come naturally more? I didn't expect to be a lyricist. I didn't start out to write lyrics, but I found that some people that I was working with weren't really telling the story or expressing the characters the way I thought they should. And so I started doing lyrics myself. You know, it was sort of, it was kind of out of self-defense and a little bit control freakdom. Um, (laughs) And then it just became, you know, something that I did. And that was something I had to get better at. You know, I think music, music is more like an art. Mm. You know, it's just some, it's kind of a gift you have. Lyrics are like a craft. Mm. It's like, I, I compare it to the difference between painting and pottery, or maybe painting and architecture. Lyrics involve a great deal of craft, and you kind of learn craft, whereas art you kind of have. Not to say you can't learn things and improve it, but basically you, you just have it. Right. Well, I love that you talked about storytelling, because that's one of the, I think, the main keys I like to talk about, is the ensemble in so many shows propels the plot or they set up the environment and you get to find out where you are and it tells stuff that you can't necessarily sometimes the principals can't tell. So how do you, now that when you started writing for the ensemble, (laughs) where do you see them as a device for you to move the plot forward? Well, first of all, I tend now to conceive shows where it's a company Mm. telling this story as opposed to here are these, you know, principal people and every now and then a bunch, a whole group of townsfolk run on and sing something and then they run off again. You know, I conceive it because it just tends to be the kind of theater to which I'm attracted as an entire group of people telling this story and yes, of course, some of them 
our principal roles, but, but everybody within it has a story and everybody has a responsibility to tell that story, which is a little different, I think, than an ensemble would be used in, say, you know, classic shows like My Fair Lady mm -hmm. or Gypsy or Music Man or something. If you think about the way the ensemble functions in, in Pippin, or Children of Eden, mm -hmm. or more recently, Hunchback of Notre Dame, or in fact, here in Prince of Egypt, they're so key to the storytelling, and they have a lot of responsibilities beyond you know, coming and singing a big chorus number. Right. So I kind of think of them that way. I don't really think of them as separate, if, if you will, from the principles. Right. And as I say, they, they all have their own stories, and also, in some instances, big story arcs. I mean, that's most obvious in Pippin. Yes. Where, where you meet the ensemble at the beginning, and they have a hidden agenda mm -hmm. that, as the, in the audience, you sense there's something going on with them, but you don't really find out till the end what their hidden agenda is, but they're basically driving the entire show. Yeah. Speaking of Pippin, the most recent revival, I saw it and I wept three times. I mean, I was so, so moved. And it's a show I've, I've seen before and been touched before, but it was a, once it was a sadness, but twice it was an overwhelming joy because I was like, this is why I'm in musical theater. So, I mean, the creation of, when you have a piece that is already iconic, but then to reinvent it, I mean, and it seems like you are very hands-on. I loved that revival, and I loved working with Diane Paulus. We just had a great collaborative relationship, and I felt that Diane's production finally realized the show. I know the original uh, Fosse production obviously was enormously successful and was very good to me, God knows, but I thought there were things that Bob got, but things he didn't get. Just because of the nature of who he was, his own limitations as a human being, along with his own kind of genius. But Diane seemed to really get the show mm. and, and get what Roger Herson and I were, were trying to do and trying to say. And, and of course, we were able to do some revisions to the show in collaboration with Diane that I think improved it greatly. So that was a really joyful experience to me because I, I felt finally that we had a for what was, for me, a more satisfying show. Yeah. If you compare Godspell is more like an ensemble piece, and then with Wicked, they set everything. I mean, you walk in and Emerald City is just the ensemble. I mean, there are, there are, there are pieces of art and they're singing. And so that's like two different, completely different ways of using the ensemble for storytelling. And you cast them and you create them before you know when you're like, this is how I want it to start. Well, in terms of writing it, sure. I mean, in terms of casting, as you well know, when you're casting the ensemble, even in fact if it's an ensemble show, of course the writers are present, but one gives pretty significant deference to both the director and choreographer mm -hmm. as to what they feel they need in terms of you know, being staging it, and of course, you know, from a musical point of view, I need certain voices, et cetera. So there are a lot of technical components you need you know, people who really can support you vocally. You need a couple of people who can really do the dancing, mm -hmm. and the, do the heavy lifting choreographically. You will always need a couple of people who are very strong actors because they'll, they'll be certain roles that basically come out of what is considered to be the ensemble. So it's much more of a conglomeration. I think, where you're looking for a panoply of skill sets. Yeah, because in, especially in something like Wicked, the ensemble bookends 
the whole show. And I mean, you see they're kind of arch, much like in Pippin, it's kind of nice. But then also with, but then on the opposite, Godspell, everyone's there the whole time. The whole time. Same. Yeah, I mean, I could only, actually I was, I was about to say that the only show of mine that I can think of that isn't really dominated by the ensemble is The Baker's Wife, but then I realize there is no ensemble. It's 19 principals, but they're there the whole time. Yes. And again, it's sort of a group effort to tell that story. Yeah, I don't really have a show, I think, where, as I say, the the chorus runs in and runs out and isn't absolutely integral to the overall vision and, and storytelling arc of the show. Yeah, I think that's one reason why, as an ensemble member, it's so satisfying to do your shows because you feel like you're contributing and you get to create a character and be part of the storytelling. Yeah, exactly. And, that's, and you feel significant. I yeah, you're not just dancer number three. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah. You said something, or it, you, you gave a note the other day for When You Believe in Prince of Egypt, I'm paraphrasing, but it was beautiful because it was given down to us. They said that when you have a number, a song like that, which you won an Oscar for, it's the number that the audience is waiting for. And if you just give them the number without it being part of the story, it loses its purpose. It was so interesting because I think you just think, oh, just go out there and sing it. This is the, the song they want. But always keeping the music within the storyline is... Well, and integral. especially with numbers like that. I mean, the truth is that the audience both wants it and resents it. Mm. If you know what I mean, they've they've been waiting to hear it, but then when it's happening, they're like, "Oh yes, here's this thing that they're expecting me just to respond to because it's famous." And so I think, in terms of folding those sorts of numbers into the storytelling, you have to work twice as hard mm. to make sure that it feels absolutely integrated. And we spent, you know, a good deal of time figuring out how we were going to use when you believe in the show. And it's basically the number during which Moses is healed. That's the function in the show, that it begins when he is at his lowest point and in complete despair and essentially ready to just give up on life. And by the end of the number, he is ready to move on to the rest of his life and, and, the, and his destiny. And it all has to happen within that number. So there's, there's a huge dramatic arc that has to occur within it. And I think it helps the number not feel obligatory in, in the show. Yeah. I mean, almost in all your shows, you have a song like that that becomes famous. Day by Day, uh, Defying Gravity, A Corner of the Sky. I know when I was first auditioning, Corner of the Sky was the number one audition yeah, song everybody of all time. Was I, I had it. And so it's like you create and write music that everyone wants to sing. I would have never thought that you think the audience resents it when it comes, but I guess if it's... Well, when you believe it's a specific case, yeah. because this is an adaptation of a work that is already well known and has an iconic song. Yeah. So, yeah, but I know when you, one goes to see shows where there is the famous song, when it comes on, there's, there's this tendency to, you know, I dare you to get me with this, kind of, <laughs> if yes. you know what I mean. Yes. And so I think as part of the creative team, one has to keep that in mind, you know. I'm, my whole thing about doing shows is I don't really think about the audience. I think about me being the audience, uh, if you know what I mean. Yes. Like, what would I like to see? What would I respond to? What would be meaningful to me? What would be moving to me? What would be a story I would care about? Mm. And how, will, how would I respond to this particular moment? Would I feel it was manipulative? Would I feel it was over the top? Or would I just go with it because of the way it's done? And I find that, you know, people are very, very different, obviously. It, that's... A, 
goes without saying, but that there is a kind of subterranean, unconscious way that people really vibrate very similarly. Mm. And so I feel if, if I can satisfy myself as an audience <laughs> objectively, I've learned that that will also be effective for a great many people. Not everybody, obviously, but for a lot, en enough people. Speaking of Prince of Egypt specifically, it was a great movie, and then there was a long hiatus, and then you and Philip have been working on a stage version for five years. Yeah, four or five years. And then this is the third production of it. What took you guys so long? Was it something you never wanted to do, or what was the incentive now to be like, let's put this great movie on stage? Well, the impetus didn't really come from us, frankly. Oh. Years ago, Philip and I were working on a show in Denver which is where Philip lives now. Mm. And while we were there, it turned out that some little theater group across the border in Switzerland was doing Prince of Egypt, which of course was completely illegal. <laughs> and somebody invited us and we said, well, we should go check this out. And we saw it and didn't particularly care, you know, that this one thing was illegal, but saw that there was real potential for it to work well on stage. And so actually I called Bill Damaschke at DreamWorks and said, you know, I just saw this and you guys have just started this theater department. I know you're doing Shrek right now, but at some point I think maybe you should think about Prince of Egypt. And Bill said, you know, we get a request for a stage adaptation for Prince of Egypt from somewhere at least once a week. So at some point we're gonna to get to it. Then there was a lot of internal turmoil in DreamWorks for a while. But then eventually, you know, I got a call and you know, basically saying, we think we're ready to do this now. So the impetus actually came from DreamWorks. I'm really excited about it because there's also a lot of wonderful Stephen Schwartz music in it. And they're always storytelling songs. So but I wanted to talk one number in particular that's a big ensemble number, but it's led by Aaron, who I'm right. playing. You are playing. I got the great fortune to work with you because the number, it wasn't quite working and at one point was on the chopping block. I don't know if it still is. It was so excited to get It's to less work. so now oh, since we worked. Well, that's frankly. great. Working with you and seeing how invested you are was really exciting, but it also made me realize the amount of songs you've probably written that have never made it to stage. Oh, sure. That yeah. you have like trunks full and, of, of songs. Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that they go in trunks, <laughs> um, though every now and then one of them gets resurrected in some way. You know, for instance, there are spots in Wicked, places for numbers where I took three or four tries until I until I got the number. I think the record in Wicked was the song between the two girls, the, the roommates, called What Is This Feeling, or more popularly referred to as Loathing, which we didn't use the title because it's a joke in the song, but everybody still calls it Loathing. <laughs> but that was my fifth try at that song. Really? I had, yeah, I did four other completely different songs, and I, and I wasn't solving it, and then finally got the notion for, oh, partly helped by some suggestions from Winnie Halsman, finally figured out, oh, this is how we can make the song work. So, and I think I'm certainly not unique in, in that way. I yeah. think all songwriters for the theater have a lot of songs that they try and that don't work until they finally get the one that works for that spot. And very often, it's a problem you're trying to solve, a storytelling problem. Like, I'm trying to tell this part of the story through music and, and finding out exactly how to do that can be tricky. Sometimes you know immediately. Mm. And, and you know, like I wrote popular and basically never changed it. Wow. I, I don't think a word of that song ever got changed from the day it was written. I just, you know, once I knew what that song was, I just knew it, or for good. It took mm. me a long time to get to 
do for good, but once I knew what that song was, I wrote it and it never changed. And then other songs like, you know, What Is This Feeling or Dancing Through Life it is like the third or fourth version of a song for, for that spot. And that's just part of, the, part of the job description. I have friends who are songwriters who are more in the pop world, and they, this is the thing they cannot stand about theater. They, they said, like, I, I've written the song. And I don't want to write another song mm. for this spot, and I don't want to change it, you know, but I actually love doing that. I love tinkering and fixing with things and feeling it get a little bit better until you finally feel, now this works. And the song you're referring to from Prince of Egypt, one of us, which is the opening number of the second act, and it's basically Moses coming and encountering the Hebrew tribe that he's gonna to try to free from bondage and discovering that they are extremely mistrustful of him and don't want him to make things any worse than they already are, which he succeeds in doing <laughs> for a while. And it, it's sort of an obligatory number mm. in, in the show. I mean, we must see his interaction with these people that he's trying to free, or what are we talking about? Right. And so I wrote this song thinking about, oh, well, it's the opening of the second act, and therefore it should have energy, and it would be nice if it were funny, and it, you know, sort of theater rules idea. But it turned out, when we saw it within the context of the show, that in some ways it succeeded too well at that, and it felt out of style with okay. the rest of the show. Right. That tonally, it felt as if it didn't really belong and so many in the audience particularly the more astute audience members just what we were talking about earlier they felt it was manipulative they felt it didn't actually feel organic within the show and that that we were trying to manipulate them into giving them a big hand for a big number right and consequently they resented it on some yes. subconscious level and so my first instinct, and those of my collaborators, was, you know what, we should just reapproach this number entirely. But since, you know, we were here and the number existed, you know, I started to have the idea of talking with Philip, the, my collaborator, maybe there's a way to make this much more storytelling, much more character driven and feel much less like we're delivering a great big number. And so, you know, I put in some cuts and I reassign some lines. Eventually, if the, if the number does stay and I'm starting to feel as if it, it has a shot, there are some lyrics I'll adjust. Mm. But now I feel we're starting to find a way to make this number be part of the story and not just now we're gonna stop and do a, a really entertaining number for you and then get back to our story, which is something that certain kinds of shows can support, but this show can't support. Definitely. What's been great is that working with you, you are like a kid in a candy store in the creative process and being in the room. You're not hidden behind a table or a computer or a piano, but a friend of mine who worked on Rags with you last year said, oh no, he's the same way. When Sh Shannon Lewis worked on Secret Silk, he's like, oh no, he embraces every part of, of the room. And it's interesting, and you also directed working. So it's fun to see that you embrace every element of this business. I really like theater. I've liked it since I was a kid. Yeah, it's really enjoyable to be part of that collaboration. What I like about theater 
is the collaborative element, mm. the, the, the sort of, this is going to start to be pretentious, but the kind of gestalt thing of it, that it, it's more than the sum of its parts, yeah. and you never know where ideas are going to come from, and you get this sort of creative group in a room, and they generate their own kind of creative heat, and if you can get the collaboration functioning so that everybody is working with one another instead of sort of pulling against one another, it's just so much fun. Yeah. And it's so exciting. And seeing this creation start to take shape and get clearer and better and more emotionally satisfying, you know, it's the most fun in the world. I can't believe they pay us to do this. <laughs> no, I agree, too. So with shows like Wicked and Pippin, you were huge commercial successes. But that doesn't mean that everything you've written has been commercially... No, not at all. Yeah. yeah. And shows like The Baker's Wife. Baker's Wife, yeah. And The Magic Show has had... A, has a, had well, a Magic Show was, a, was very successful commercially. And I get asked all the time about a revival of The Magic mm. Show. But the truth is it's not a great show, to be honest. Mm. And it was built very, very specifically around Doug Henning and a specific personality. And so to do it again now, it would need really to be very strongly revised. Mm. And I'm not sure I, I want to spend the time to do that, right. to be honest. I think there are other stories to tell and other things that I, I want to do. And so, plus I have this review for the same company for which Shannon Lewis did Secret Silk, which is called Magic To Do, which involves, it's songs of mine with terrific magic illusions. And oh, I feel like, okay. well, that exists. Yeah. And, Let's, you know, get that out there and not have to go back and, you know, futz around with the magic show and try to make it a more, a, just a better yeah. show than it actually is right now. Yeah. But The Baker's Wife, the album is a cult hit. Yeah. And people love it. And I was talking to Linda yesterday and she was like, well, you have to ask him if he knew that Metal Arc was going to change not only women's role, but storytelling role, and it changed the face of how you tell a story through song and musical theater. Oh, absolutely not at all. No, of course I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, but you never know that. Right. I mean, that was a very revelatory experience, writing that song for me, because even though the specifics of the song are completely about the story that's occurring in The Baker's Wife, the underlying emotion of a song came from a time in my life when I was having a lot, you know, a lot of sort of emotional turmoil, and that kind of got funneled into that song. And then actually when I finished the song, I was quite embarrassed about it, and I thought, well, I can never play this song for anybody because everybody will know everything about me. I felt like I was naked Oh wow! in the song. And then, of course, I discovered two things. I discovered that, no, everybody just responded to it as, as storytelling, and they didn't at all see anything other than that, number one. Number two, most significantly for me as a writer, the underlying emotion of the song connected with people. And I thought, oh, well, that's really all I have to do is just tell the truth, be really honest in a song and draw on my, you know, my own whatever, you know, things that are going on in my own insecurities and my own sort of hidden needs, et cetera, which is what actors do. Yeah. And then you, you sort of hide a little bit behind a role, just enough so you're not incredibly embarrassed about doing that in front of other people. But really, you're drawing on yourself. That's what the best actors do, and I think it's what the best writers do. And that was a lesson I really learned with Metal Ark yeah. because of how people responded to the song. Yeah. Yesterday you said that you never want to 
feel like you're listening to someone sing. Mm -hmm. And you, you, I think you hear that, you're like, oh, it's always just an extension of the dialogue when it goes into song. But so often that doesn't happen. And then I think also for the composer and lyricist to say that, you're like, oh, they actually mean it. But it's an interesting thing. And you know, I do a lot of master classes with young musical theater students, et cetera. And many of whom are, you know, at Carnegie Mellon or University of Michigan or places where they're really the top kids in, mm. the, in the country. And I find very often they've been so taught to do that aspect of, of performing, you know, really be in the moment and tell the story and whatever. And I'll watch the performance and there'll be something missing. And I had a realization, which I've imparted to them, which is a little bit paradoxical to what you're saying, which is I realized when we see the best performance, the people we love seeing perform, and yes, they seem completely within the moment, but underneath it, there is the joy of singing. Mm. Because people who can sing have a certain joy in that. And that joy, again, on a very unconscious level, communicates to the audience. So I feel that you don't want to take that out of it. Right. You know, there's a young lady in, in this production who's playing the role of Nefertari, and she sings this one song of grief after her baby is killed when all the Egyptian firstborn are killed. And I think she does such a remarkable job of it for this very reason, because she is completely in the moment. She's just telling the story and being in the moment from an acting point of view. There's never an instant where you feel she's doing a song for you. Mm. And at the same time, underneath it, her vocal production is such that you, there's a certain aspect to it. Even though she's singing the most grieving, saddest song in the show, there is a certain aspect of the joy of singing underneath it. And I think it's why her ability to do both those things is why it's working so well. That's so great. I, I love Santana. To go back to a song like Metal Ark, I think, in my opinion, you've written one here in Prince of Egypt with for the rest of my life about PTSD, post-traumatic. Oh, it's interesting you should pick up on that. Yeah. That's exactly what that is. It's yeah. a PTSD song. Yeah, I got to watch it last night with some lighting. And not knowing where it came from from you, but you realize that everyone has a moment in their life that there's, they're never going to recover from. Yeah. That this is going to be part of, part of their tapestry forever. Well, a, a couple of things I can say about that song. It's so interesting. Well, I'll, let me come to the PTSD part about it at the, at the end. So this is a song that Moses sings basically to God after he has carried out the plagues and the death of the firstborn and is just feeling unbelievably guilty and horrible about what he's done. And he's very angry at having been ordered to do this mm. because, as you say, he realizes he's never going to get over it. And we thought that this moment, we being me and Philip Lezebnik, my collaborator, felt as if it was very, very important to get inside Moses' head right at this point. Because every other telling the story we've ever seen, you know, he does, let my people go, and then there are a lot of plagues, and then he wins, and then he celebrates. And I was like, well, no, that's <laughs> not how actually, that's how Bible characters maybe act. That's how maybe Charlton Heston acts. But that's not really how real people act. So I thought about PTSD, and I actually read interviews with soldiers 
who had come back from the Iraq war, who were suffering with PTSD and what was going on with them. And some of the lyrics in the song are actually derived from those interviews. Oh, wow. So it's very interesting you should pick up on that because that's literally a part of what informed that song. It's so moving. So I wrote my first play recently. How do you approach the discipline and the disappointments and the critics and the voices in your head when you're trying to create art? How Do you have a, a certain process or advice or something that keeps you going? Yeah, I have lots of advice about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, because I've been doing it a long time and I have had to figure this out. You know, how do you keep going? Because anytime you create art, it's the equivalent of just painting a great big bullseye over your heart. A lot of people are going to take a shot at you. Mm. It's very difficult to deal with. And I think each artist or creative person, if he or she is going to continue to do that, has to figure out how you deal with it. And, you know, I have, for one thing, I have a sign on my wall that I found somewhere, and it says, three simple ways to avoid criticism. Say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. <laughs> and so that's very inspiring to me because it just says, if you do something, you will be criticized for it and that will hurt. But if you don't want to experience that, then don't do anything. That's part of the price of doing yeah. business, if, if you will. And I've also learned with, you know, you mentioned critics, I've learned how I deal with that which is I don't read reviews at all, mm. except under one circumstance, which is when a project is in development. For instance, Prince of Egypt, the first production we did of it was in Palo Alto, California at Theatre Works. And after that production was done, when I knew we were planning the next production, I had the press office send me every single review that had come out. Wow. And I sat down and read them all in one sitting. And I didn't even look at where they were from. I didn't look at, was this an important paper? Was this a known critic? It had nothing to do with that. I just read everything. And certain issues stood out. Things that were being criticized over and over again. Not always in the same language, and one had to kind of learn to read between the mm. lines. But I sort of said like, oh, okay, these are places where we are failing to communicate. So these are places we have to address. We did the exact same thing with Wicked. Mm. After San Francisco, the tryout, got all the reviews, read all the reviews in one sitting, realized some things that we were not successfully getting across in the show, and the creative team dealt with those. But once the show opened in New York, I never read the reviews. Wow. Because why? Yeah. Why do that to yourself? I've had an occasion, a couple of occasions. I, I tend to get very bad reviews, which is one of the reasons why I don't read them. But on a couple of occasions, particularly with the movies, I get better reviews. You know, I've had friends say, I know you don't read reviews, but you have to read this review of Pocahontas, blah, 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 because it's so glowing, and I absolutely will not read them. Wow. In a way, I think the positive reviews can be even more destructive because they feel so good. Yeah. And then you get hungry for that kind of approval, and then you start second-guessing yourself and you start seeing yourself through other people's eyes. Will they like this? Will I get that same wonderful kind of strokes from this again? And it's, I think it's so destructive. I think we, we can't look at what we're doing through other people's eyes at all. 
only to the extent that it can be instructive to us in improving what we are doing and trying to get closer to our goals. Now, this is a really easy thing to say yeah. and a very difficult thing to do. But, you know, I've gotten better at it over the years. I've learned how to, how to cope for me and in a way that allows me to continue to work. Do you think as you get more successful, your bill's eye gets bigger and people want to tear you down? I think people just like to tear you down regardless. Mm. You know, I don't feel like I'm any more harshly criticized now <laughs> than I was. I mean, I did have the thing of being extremely successful very fast. And so, yeah, that might have created some resentment and some desire on the parts of some people to pull me down a little bit. Or not, I don't know. I don't feel that it has really anything to do with where I am in my life. I just think it's the nature of how people respond to creativity. Very often it's with a great deal of hostility. So it seems like you love to write regardless. You've written for television, you've written for film, theater, and now you, your newest venture is that you have an original show that's going to be on a ship. It's actually Princess. Okay, now, I didn't out. write this show. I'm oh, actually, you didn't? No, no, I'm functioning as a producer. Oh, really? Yeah, John Tartaglia created this show. Oh, wonderful. I've given him some creative input, but basically it's Johnny's show. Oh, wow. I'm just having a blast doing this partnership I have with Princess. It arose out of the review I referred to earlier, that Magic To Do yes. review, which they had done and was very successful for them. And they said, you know, we're trying to up the level of our entertainment and really offer our guests very first-class entertainment on a kind of a Broadway level but which is exclusive to our ships. Would you consider an alliance with us where you bring us stuff? Oh. And what's been great about it is I have a lot of very talented and creative friends. Yes. And so I've gone to them and said, as with John Tartaglia, I went to him and I said, listen, would you be interested in doing this using your skill at puppetry, finding a story that you can tell through the medium of, partly at least, through the medium of puppetry that is for adults, not kids. And he found this Asian folktale and basically created it, and it's absolutely fantastic. So you're a producer too. Yeah, kind of, yes. <laughs> That's a, I, I don't yeah. know what, a creative producer. Creative, yes. I mean, the nice thing about doing something for the ships is I don't have to raise any money. I really don't have to worry about the budget. It's purely the, the artistic part of it. Yeah, and it's, it's uh. been great fun, and so far it's gone really well. Uh. And The Hunchback, you're part of the movie and the new stage production? Yeah, yeah. And that ensemble includes a choir, so it's yeah. even a bigger group of people doing storytelling. How did that addition to the show come along? Well, the movie, part of the score of the movie, which is by, the music is by Alan Menken, but part of the concept that Alan and I had was that the score would partly be choral, mm. and there would be this big chorus singing away in Latin. And then I felt that was so integral to the score, as did Alan, and I feel it's Alan's best score, that when we were going to do the stage adaptation, we really felt we should have the choir. We did an earlier version of it where we didn't have it, and it felt a little unsatisfying. And so this time around, my son Scott Schwartz directed it and, and had this sort of theatrical concept for it. And he said, you have to have that choir. So what we'll have to do is, wherever we're doing the show, we'll have to find a local choir mm. and bring it in. And obviously you can't give them a lot of staging, so there'll be an ensemble, but then they'll be like a church choir, just sitting there and being part of the, the mise-en-scene, if you will. And when they sing, they'll stand up, and when they don't sing, they'll sit down, but they have to be part of the show. 
and from everyone I know who's seen it in several different productions, the choir is what people talk about. They get chills. It's so exciting. We came up with the idea when we did the first production in La Jolla, because how do you open the second act, and maybe there should be an entre act. And we tried a couple of things, and they were kind of didn't not very satisfying. And then, you know, I went to Michael Starabin, and I was like, what if we open the second act, and you we just use the choir before anybody comes out and you write some kind of choral medley using themes from it and then I'll write Latin. I won't write Latin, but I'll find Latin for them to sing. So he wrote this whole arrangement that Alan went over and approved, and then I found Latin words, and that's how the second act opens. And it's so cool, and it gets one of the biggest hands of the night. Oh. Yeah, it's really fun. I brought up the choral music, because one of my favorite pieces that, of yours that you've ever written is called Testimony. Oh, thank you. And you wrote it for the uh, San, Francisco San Francisco Game and Game Scores. Score, and it yeah. was for the It Gets Better. Yeah. And the It Gets Better project was very important to me. But just listening to the lyrics and the beauty of it, I, I mean, I was weeping. And so it's, I love that you got commissioned to do that. How did that? Me too. You know, San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus had, was doing sort of an evening of, you know, my songs with the, with the chorus. And I got to know the choral director because I saw it. Uh, this guy named Dr. Tim Selig, and he said, you know, would you ever do a piece for us, a standalone piece for us? And I like to write choral music. And yeah, and I thought, well, I'd like to do the It Gets Better project, but I don't want to write a song called It Gets Better. Mm. But I'd like it to be based on that. And actually, through them, they put me in touch with Dan Savage, who's just an enormous hero of mine anyway. And now Dan is a pretty good friend. Dan and his uh, husband, Terry, have become pretty good friends now. But yeah, I got in touch with Dan and said, look, I've been commissioned to do this, but can you give me interviews or what can you give me? And he sent me a whole book of It Gets Better interviews of men and women Mm. who were gay, who were contemplating killing themselves when they were younger, did not kill themselves, obviously, because they were interviewed in the book, and then how they feel now about their lives. And that became the basis of this piece. And a lot of it is just lines that I took from the interviews. I'm so proud of that piece. You know, they do it in schools. They they go into like some school in Oklahoma or Alabama, and they do this. And then, you know, and we've gotten letters. Tim Selig always forwards me the letters. And many, many choruses do it now. And what's been nice is not just gay choruses or gay men's choruses, but just choruses all over the place are are doing it now. But a lot of times it's in schools. And then we've actually gotten letters of people saying, you know, I was thinking of killing myself. And now I'm not going to. You know, how can you beat that? You can't. As a a writer, you can't beat that. So of your long and incredible career that's just going to keep on going, do you have a moment or a highlight that you just cherish that is something that more than awards? Oh, yeah, I don't care about awards. (laughs) I mean, awards are so silly. You know, it's nice to have some of them because you get identified by them. You know, Mm. they become part of your name. You know, now I am like Academy Award winner, Stephen Schwartz. You know, if you're nominated for an award, it's nicer to win it than not. But I always feel that a lot of, more often than not, you you win awards not for the things you should win the awards for. Like Alan Menken has won so many Academy Awards and one of the only scores for which he did not win an Oscar is Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is clearly his best yeah. score. I mean, to me, it's so great, and that one he didn't win for. So the whole thing is very sort of political, et cetera. 
Um, but yes, there are a lot of moments in my life where I have learned the effect that something that I've done has had on somebody, communicated. You know, I don't believe in the power of art to change the world. If it had the power to change the world, we wouldn't be living in the world we are. <laughs> but I have seen over and over again the power of art to change individual lives. You know, I was telling you the thing about the Gets Better testimony, but I've heard lots of stuff about, you know, defying gravity and the effect mm. it's had on people and for good and and shows, you know, whole shows. And that's really gratifying because you know you're communicating with people and in a very small way helping to heal, you know, one individual at a time, helping to heal a, a very damaged world. Right. If you had to pick a song right now just to have play out the credits, not one of your songs, just a song that inspires you the most, what would it be? Both Sides Now is my favorite song, Joni Mitchell. Done. The Judy Collins version. Thank okay. you so much. There you go. What a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Reb. Toes and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds got in my way I've looked at clouds from both sides now From up and down and still somehow It's clouds illusions I recall I really don't know clouds at all Moons and dunes and ferris wheels The dizzy dancing way you feel When every fairy tale comes real I've looked at love that way but now it's just another show You leave them laughing when you go And if you care, don't let them know Don't give yourself away Crowds. I've looked at life that way But now old friends are acting strange They shake their heads, they say I've changed Well something's lost, but something's gained In living every day I really don't know life at all. 